thank you everybody for your <laughs> very strong opinions on a series that has not had relevance for a long time. Shut your face perennially relevant. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. The sound of leaves under your feet, the sight of jack-o'-lanterns scattered along the ledge of the porches as you walk by, the image of people wearing absolutely ridiculous outfits that we should be allowed to wear just throughout the year. But it's contained one night where you can go out and ask strangers to provide you with treats, potentially with tricks. I have never seen a good trick performed while trick-or-treating. Perhaps that can be the new adult activity. Instead of going trick-or-treating, we we are going to be the ones giving out the candy. But perhaps we can also step up our game and we can figure out why there's a, there's a trick aspect to all of this. So it is Halloween, everybody. and. What does that mean? It means, well, not horror. This isn't necessarily a horror episode, I should say. But it does mean spooky creatures. It means werewolves and vampires and ghosts and mummies and whatever else I might learn about from my book friend's books. Because I'm sure there's some things that are even more horrific than all of the different types of creatures that I have mentioned. And I am very excited to see what kind of spooky things might come out of this episode. So I'm going to pass it over to Virginia, perhaps a purveyor of some of the spookiest books. So really, this week, Gabriel, I actually don't have a horror, not really that much of a horror today. I mean, as you pointed out, horror can be read at any time of the year, and that's what I do. So today, I thought I would do something different. Also, like, didn't help that I wasn't really feeling the vampires and the werewolf this week. So I have decided to go with a childhood favorite. This is a cartoon that my brother and I used to watch every week. We look forward to seeing what kind of monsters, what kind of creatures that our main character have to contend with this week. And and because books weren't really as very accessible to us when we were young, I never actually read the book, the manga that inspired the anime. But I got a chance to do it now because it's been translated into English. So thank you, Drawn and Quarterly, for doing that. The publisher said that this is sort of probably the most popular manga that you have never heard of. And I think that is right because I don't think even after this has been published, I, I don't think it has really answered the consciousness of the other parts of the world just yet. But they are definitely household names in parts of Asia, in Japan, of course, you know, and, and also in Hong Kong. We all know about all these different creatures. Now, this is like a really, really critical work in Japan and has been credited with basically popularizing the stories of the yokai. Now, if you ask anyone who in Japan to describe a yokai to you, what do they visualize when they think of Tantanpo or the Itamomen or the Konagi Jiji? That's kind of what they would think of. It is the creation of this particular author. Now, there's not really, a, I guess, a direct translation of yokai. They're, they're kind of the 
they say that it's kind of like the things that go bump in the night, you know, in Japan. They're these supernatural, spiritual kind of energies, these monster things that can take the form of a human or an animal or an object or a combination of them. And they're not also not necessarily all evil. They are good yokai, the bad yokai. Or sometimes they are both. Could be good sometimes and bad sometimes, sort of like us. But that's okay. Don't worry. If the yokai decide to turn evil, Kitaro is going to stand between us, the humans, and those bad yokai. Now, when you hear the crows call three times and you hear the frogs answer twice, you know that Kitaro is near. Kitaro is the last member of the ghost tribe. And he is sort of a yokai human boy. He was born and he lived in the cemetery. He's about 350 years old and he has many, many different kinds of powers. And part of the fun thing about watching the show or reading the manga is discovering all the things that Kitaro can do. Sometimes a little too convenient uh, what he can do. He can regenerate from any injuries. Parts of his bodies can like get separated from Kitaro himself and he can control them remotely. His hair is basically this antenna that he uses to detect spiritual energy whenever he has to try to find the yokai. And some of his power also come from his vest, which is made from different strands of hair from his ancestor. And so all of their skills and talents are all at his disposal. And of course, if you're playing the KIF bingo, there is the hair box for you. Kitaro only has one eye. His hair covers half of his face, but underneath his hair, in his empty eyeball hole, is where his father lives. His father is the Madami Oyaji, which I have right here. He has been dead, kind of, but he has been reborn into an animated eyeball. And he loves nothing more than taking a hot bath in a teacup, which you will find him doing fairly frequently. He knows a lot about the yokai and he has a great love for his son. And that's super helpful because sometimes Kitaro can get a little cocky and gets into trouble underestimating the yokai and is in over his head. Now, Kitaro has sort of taken upon himself to keep that balance between the human world and the yokai world. He's always there to help the humans give those yokai crosses the line. And that's what most of the stories in the manga is about. They are usually some humans we have some inexplicable sickness or a village is being invaded or haunted by something and they don't know what and they'll come to Kitaro for help. For instance, we've got these parents who came to Kitaro saying that they cannot wake their son up. And so they're trying to figure out what happened and Kitaro take a look at the kid and it's like his soul has been stolen by the Yasha. The Yasha is sort of like this pipe piper kind of like yokai who has lured the kids with his pretty music and then he will steal their soul and put them in a balloon that he hang around his house. So Kitaro has to go find the child's soul. All these two landlords who came to Kitaro for help to try to find the fourth floor. Now, in a lot of Asian countries, the number four sounds like the word death. So there's usually no fourth floor in any buildings. But these two landlords know that there is no fourth floor in their building. But this Obaka Daruma came and said, hey, we want to rent out your 
fourth floor. And because these landlords are pretty greedy and they're like, hey, if they're going to offer us money to rent a floor that doesn't exist, sure, we'll take your money. And so the Obaka Daruma moved in and set up a business for all the different kind of other yokais to help them. So soon, all these different strange creatures keep showing up at that building and it's driving away all the human customers for all the other business. So all the un- other renters start complaining. But every single time when they try to go find the Obaka Daruma, they couldn't find him because he is in the fourth floor, which they can't get to. Um, so they need Kitaro to help out. Well, sometimes the stories are also about humans who may need to learn a lesson, such as these two guys who laugh at Kitaro when, you know, Kitaro say that yokai exists and they're like, no, they don't. And so Kitaro decides to impersonate a train conductor and uh, take them on a ghost train ride. Or this baseball player who found a baseball back one day and he looks at it and it's like, oh, that looks pretty good. Maybe I'll try to use it in my game. Well, and it turns out that it's like a magical baseball bat. And he hits a home run every single time. And his team is getting a lot of attention and they're even getting to compete in the world championship. But then Kitaro shows up and say, hey, wait a second, that's my bat. And they're like, no, we found it. It's ours. And so Kitaro is like, fine, we'll play you for it. If you win the game against me and my friends, then fine, you can have the bat. And they are like, wow, there's no way we could lose. We have a magical bat. So they agreed to play the game. But when they show up to the field, there was Kitaro and his team of yokai. And of course, Kitaro has other tricks up his sleeve to beat the magical bat. Or maybe you have greedy scientists. You know, a bunch of scientists have discovered a monster. It's Suglodon and it's centuries and centuries old. Oh, it must have the secret to immortality. Well, if only we can get his blood, maybe we can figure out the secret for ourselves. So humans decide to send a bunch of scientists to find this monster. And that team includes the young and upcoming boy genius Shuichi and also Kitaro. Which makes Suichi really mad because it's like, well, we are scientists. Why wouldn't we need this demon boy? And the excuse that he was given is that they can't take Kitaro off the team is because they already made some name tags. So too bad. And so they got, you know, Kitaro to come up. And of course, they managed to get some blood to get a vial. And they were just on their way home. But Suichi starts to get really greedy. And he's like, well, I want to be one to win that Nobel Prize for science. And I want to be the one to discover immortality for humans. So he decided to poison Kitaro with this powder that he has synthesized in his lab that is supposed to get rid of all the yokai power of Kitaro. And he also stabbed him with a little bit of that monster blood just to mess with his body. And Kitaro started turning into this giant Kitaro. He became Kaiju Kitaro. And so what happens afterwards was Kaiju Kitaro versus Suglodon and also because it's Japan, Mecha Suglodon that is created by Shuichi himself, this robot Suglodon, and they go into a big battle in Tokyo. This is like not really a scary kind of manga series. It is more like funny. It's got lots of jokes, lots of humor in it. And it's really a lot of fun meeting all the different kind of yokai. But it's not just Japanese yokai. There's also like some familiar faces because sometimes witches werewolves, vampires, Draculas, Frankenstein's monster. Sometimes they will also show up and sometimes they come and invade Japan. So the Japanese yokai will have to defend themselves. So it's lots of fun. Each story features a different kind of yokai and it's just 
uh, it's a lot of fun. If you are interested in maybe meeting some different other kind of folklore with different kind of monsters and creatures, you can check out Kit. Taro by Shigeru Mizuki. I was really sad. Mizuki is like super popular in Japan. And the one time that I actually get to go there, I didn't get to visit his town, which has an airport name after him and also has a whole road that they have that is full of statues of all the different Kitaro characters. And then I'm like really, really sad that I didn't get to go, but that's okay. I got, I got, you know, my little souvenir from there. So next time you're walking down the street and you hear this noise that goes ge, 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 ge in the wild, you will know that Kitaro has once again foiled the plans of a yokai and the world is singing his praises. Wow! <laughs> I, that, I've never heard of that before and that's amazing. <laughs> that sounds so fun. Uh, yeah, okay. Alright, I didn't expect that. I'm glad that we started off on such a high note because I think we're going to go real dark next. Do you want to talk about what you decided to read, Kareen? Yes, we can talk about what I decided to read. Okay, so the the brief that I received was, you know, like a mythical monster creature. And in honor of uh, BTS's JK Vampire photo shoot, I decided to go with the classic monster. I decided to go with vampires. And so I punched that into the catalog, adult fiction, vampires. And I came upon a book that I had seen, oh, probably 10 minutes of the movie when I was flipping through channels at one point. I was like, this is a really cute movie. It's about a young boy and he's kind of like falling in love with a a young vampire as well. And they're just like really like appreciating each other and having adventures together in the 10 minutes that I saw. So I thought, okay, I'll I'll read the book. This could be fun. This could be a really light, enjoyable vampire romp. That is not what this is. That is not what this is. And Virginia did warn me because for some reason I also thought this book was a novella. And it is 478 pages. So not only is it not a fun, short vampire romp, it is a long, dark meditation on existential angst and how we should burn Sweden to the ground. At the end of the book, you will feel so much hatred towards Sweden and the Swedish that it it borders on uncomfortable how angry I am at Sweden right now. Maybe we should reconsider the existence of Sweden. I'm pretty sure that's what the thesis statement of this book is. So the book that I am talking about is Let the Right One In by, and I'm very sorry, I'm about to butcher some Swedish, John Ajvide Lindqvist. And it is not a fun, sweet childhood romance story, but it does feature Oscar, who's 12 years old. He is, it's the 1980s, and this book is set in kind of like a working class suburb of Blackburg, which is a place I will never, ever go to. And Oscar, oh, Oscar is having a rough time. Oscar's parents are divorced. He lives with his mother. His father is an alcoholic who lives somewhere out in the countryside. So he's kind of grown up without his father. And the book has a lot to say about fathers. 
not only is he having kind of like a rough time at home, although quite frankly, his mother seems lovely and makes him a lot of hot chocolate, but she gets a rather short stick in this novel, as does every woman. Not only is he having a rough time at home, he is also having what can only be described as a hellish time at school. He is mercilessly bullied physically, emotionally, mentally in horrifying ways that I also have a lot of questions for the Swedish educational system that no one recognizes what's going on. He's also incontinent, which just makes everything so much worse. But things kind of change and turn around when he meets Ellie who is a young girl who has moved into the neighborhood with her very mysterious father. Um, She seems a bit strange and pale (laughs) and doesn't seem to want any candy, but is really interested in Rubik's Cubes. But together they forge kind of like this half friendship as outsiders. Ellie is only outside at night. (laughs) And, you know, uses a lot of weird praises and slang that Oscar doesn't understand, but he thinks that she's kind of cool. And so they they start to get to know each other a, mo- a little bit more. And Ellie is kind of the only person that recognizes within Oscar this kind of rage and darkness and fury with the world around him and that they have in common. Ellie lives with, sorry, Sweden, Hacken who is a former teacher who has been fired for having child pornography. So, yeah. He sucks, and I hate him. And he loves Ellie, and he goes hunting for her. Because, as I'm sure you've put together, Ellie is a vampire! (gasps) Yes! Ellie is a vampire. Um, Ellie is in the body of a child, but is actually over 200 years old and has a traumatic history of being a castrato from back then. So it's got a lot of weird gender stuff going on about that. But Ellie Ellie needs to feed on human blood. And so Hacken goes off and finds victims, which we get in far too much detail than I'm perhaps comfortable for. And yep. And he sucks and I hate him. So, yes, this is about their friendship in kind of going with the the old vampire tropes. Ellie cannot go into a building unless they're invited in. But this extends the metaphor that Oscar is the one person that Ellie kind of lets into their world, that they share all of their history, all of their secrets, all of their their concerns. They're, They're a monster, but not a monster. And Oscar also lets Ellie into his world, telling her about the bullies as Ellie tries to help him fight back and find his place in the world. Okay. So I really hated this book more than perhaps I've hated anything in my life, except Sweden. Sweden's coming in number two. Sorry, Sweden. Yeah, I would definitely say that, oh, Jiminy's, this is not a, this is, this is, this is, this is not a book that you should read if you're not in the right mood for it. It has warnings for pretty much everything, everything, everything child pornography, sexual assault, gender stuff, like it's got it all. It was a bestseller in Sweden and has been made into two movies, one a Swedish movie and one an American adaptation, as well as a television series. It kind of plays with all of the vampire mythology that you know and maybe love 
from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but with a much darker Swedish twist. And I feel like it very bluntly goes through the uh, kind of moral of the story that we all know from vampire shows, which is that the real monster is man. Yeah, duly noted. So I'm going to say, don't read this. Please don't. Do yourself a favor and just watch what we do in the shadows. A much more, a superior vampire adaptation. The only vampires that you will ever need. They are interesting and fun and have something cool to say. And John Adide Lindquist has nothing to say. And down with Sweden. Well, (laughs) yeah, the real monster was man. I think, I think that'll be how we, uh, that'll be. Yeah, we think of this episode because, oh, wow. I don't know why it's a bestseller. I would like to know why it was a bestseller. But like it kind of clips along. And if you enjoy descriptions of people hunting down small children to kill them, then I guess that's your jam. But like it, it is it is written. There are words one files after the other. Like there is a there is a plot. There's several people who get murdered and killed and jump out of hospital windows into this blazing sun, and people get their heads taken off and they kill so many children. But the problem is, is that because the way the book is, and everyone's a one hundred percent psychopath, they're like, good, great, fine, kill them all, kill them all. I hope you choose that as our teaser line. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, maybe, maybe we'll go on to the existential question that I have <laughs> to see if we can maybe put some of this energy somewhere. So I have <laughs> two options for existential questions that kind of play off each other. The first one that I would be interested to see anybody answer is Team Edward or Team Jacob. But the follow-up question to that, if you don't care enough to say something, would be, do you prefer vampires or werewolves? I think that's fair. Do we have any strong Twilight opinions? I have a million strong Twilight opinions. (laughs) Um, But to answer your question, uh, I'm always going to say Team Bella because I feel like Bella is is the best and honestly if I had if we're doing like a shipping pair uh her and whatever character Anna Kendrick was playing in the movies like I felt like they had some good chemistry that was sadly ignored but if I had to choose if I had to choose I'm gonna go with team Edward because they have better outfits vampires always dress better than werewolves werewolves wear like a lot of plaid and like outdoorsy stuff whereas i'm much more into like a gothic look so i'm always team vampire ignoring all of the elephants in the room i'm team jacob i always prefer the like you know in a in a love triangle there's always one who's the friend and and that is always a healthier better relationship friendship first guys but also, uh, and I'm going to have to go with vampires, even though I do think that like werewolves as like monstrous monsters are more interesting. Of course, you know, going back to my Dracula, my Dracula fave, I do always like any interpretation of vampires. I have absolutely no feelings towards Jacob or whoever the other person is. <laughs> doesn't matter to me. <laughs> no interests and no feelings 
at all about them. Um, so I will answer the second question. You know, see, we need Liz here because Liz is a Twilight fan. And I can say she's Team Edward because I've asked before. So if anyone was wondering. See, without knowing any of them, I'm always going to go with what Fiona said. I don't Jacob, but anyway, I don't, I don't know anything about them. So what do I care? Um, I am, I will actually go with werewolves instead of vampires. I think that they're more, in, like, I feel like Fiona's, they're more interesting because, you know, they just turn once and then, you know, for the rest of the time, they have to deal with all of that. You know, I, I would, yeah, they, they seem more fun to me. But like you said, Corinne, unless they are, they are what we do in the shadows then yeah okay yeah and, and what we do in the shadows obviously the vampires are cooler than the werewolves then then everything then everything i think that i i would actually have to go for werewolves as well partially because of the fact that i i think i like the the metaphor behind them more like the idea of like the parasitic force versus the idea of like something that is you're grappling with your own humanity and you're grappling with like a, a loss of control and all that more importantly i like the fact that werewolves have friends baked into their lore you get a little pack and that's very sweet to me and so i think i like werewolves more that being said i think if i had to pick one i would go for team jacob specifically because jacob has better memes and I would prefer to get more meme content. And also because I think I would get so, so frustrated with Edward because he doesn't have to sleep. And so he's always going to be ahead of me on anything or Bella on anything because he just has so much more time on his hands. And I think that's really unfair. And so I think the sort of the power imbalance there, I just can't get behind that. There's if there's too much difference in productivity, it'll just ruin it. So I do think that team team Jacob and also just werewolves in general. I don't know. I feel like I'd rather hang out with the werewolves than the strange Cullen family. So all right. Thank you everybody for your <laughs> very strong opinions on a series that has not had relevance for a long time. Shut your face perennially relevant. <laughs> all right. If you in the audience have been screaming, that's okay. We have to. I'm going to bring us over next to Fiona to see what my other book friend has for us. All right. So um, I am on topic uh, because I have chosen an excellent book about a monster. But of course, the true monster is patriarchy. I read The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick by Mallory O'Meara. This is a nonfiction book for the movie buffs out there and also for the monster buffs. I think I've mentioned before, I actually love monsters. I love monster books. I love monster movies. And I especially love when they move towards the cheesy and away from the scary. I love the mischievous monster archetype. And I love the honorable but ugly monster archetype. You know, the like the leading man who has been put into a monster body archetype. And that is what we have here with The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is what uh, this book is about. But it is actually about the creator of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So Millicent Patrick actually designed and created the suit for The Creature from the Black Lagoon. However, before Mallory O'Meara wrote this book and did the research for it, there was some 
disagreement in the film community uh, about whether the designer was actually Patrick or whether it was her male co Worker. So he sort of usurped her part in this. She never got credit on the film. This is an old black and white film uh, and credits were quite different, but it was also the fact, of course, that she was a woman. And they sent her on a tour to promote the film. And, you know, she was often shown in photo shoots drawing pictures of it, posing beside it. But all of that was actually used to discredit her. Her co-worker put it as, you know, she was a pretty face and that's why she got to go on the tour. That's why all the photos are of her. And so basically, while she is going on this tour, he is planning to, I guess, overthrow her. And when she comes back, she finds herself out of a job because of this meddling man. So it's a sad story because she was an amazing artist. Uh, not only uh, was a, she a designer, she also worked at Disney as one of the first female animators. Uh, and there is a cool section in there about her as well as a couple other female artists at Disney. For those of you who are, who are Disney buffs, the thing is, after all of that, Millicent Patrick sort of falls into obscurity. So the author goes and and does this research to pull her out of it. And the book is about not just Millicent Patrick as an artist, but also as kind of like an heiress. She has this like crazy family history um, and like lives in this this giant mansion with an overbearing father and kind of makes her own way in the world. It also, in parallel, tells Mallory O'Meara's experience of doing the research. So I quite enjoyed all the like archival aspects of it. Uh, you know, like she pretty much uh, one for one talks about what it's like to track down all of this hidden for information. And then these moments of triumph when you when you find a name in a record and are able to follow it. And then also uh, Mallory O'Meara's reflections on uh, the current state of the film industry, specifically uh, the horror film industry and and the ways in which patriarchal power are still so present. And, and you know, sort of using this opportunity of, un, of retracing Patrick's story to dredge up the ways in which women are are subjugated not just in the moment but then you know in the past that we we um, erase these histories so that you can't possibly build on them so is very interesting and uh you know pulls in some bi uh, autobiographical stuff about omira which which was quite interesting because it because it's this parallel between two different times and two different women working in the horror film industry the Creature from the Black Lagoon is uh, a monster whose design I really love. So it was cool to find out about the creator. Uh, one thing I will say is I watched the film after reading the book and was so deeply disappointed. <laughs> Apologies to anyone who loves The Creature from the Black Lagoon. You know, and it's one of those things that that somebody watching it from now, we have so much better effects. And, and personally, I think, you know, better story building and stuff. So it was a little bit uh, anticlimactic for me, um, especially because you hear the author go on about like how amazing it is. Uh, and then you watch it and you're like, it's basically like, um, they are archaeologists in South America, and they find these scary fish bones. And then this monster kidnaps uh, a woman on their team <laughs> and like that's like kind of the story and then there's a lot of like shots of like the water like da -na 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 -na. but you do get to see the suit and it is pretty cool but again I think it's a I, a lot of 
source material for, you know, like famous monsters can be underwhelming. And then it's just remembering that it's this, it's a legacy that's really interesting. And it is that tracing the story that that sometimes is more interesting than um, than where it actually came from originally. Um, it just how it has affected culture and build up on that. So I would highly recommend this to film buffs, monster lovers, feminist readers, and uh, also, again, if you if you have an interest in Disney, a lot of things have been written lately about female animators in Disney. And so this was a really interesting part of that history uh, that kind of connected some dots for me. So that is The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Mallory O'Meara. Highly recommended for you nonfiction readers in this spooky season. Very cool. Yeah, I've never seen Creature from the Black Lagoon, Monster from the Black Lagoon. I've never seen it, but I've definitely seen pictures of that suit. And I think I've seen pictures of the suit with the woman beside it as well and then not realized who she was which is really really cool so i love that that's a that's a great that's a great nonfiction choice for this week all right so i am going to talk about a book that i was initially going to read for a different episode on the podcast but it turns out i could have read it for quite a few different episodes we've had on this podcast <laughs> this week I chose a ghoulish sort of tale, but it isn't the type of ghost story that I would normally think. And even in talking about it, I don't know how much I'll get into the fact that there are there are ghosts in this book. This is a this is a supernatural book, but the supernatural isn't necessarily the point. And it does actually take a while for the supernatural to really get active, especially because early on in the book, you could dismiss it. You could dismiss a lot of it as just being grief, honestly. So Summer Sons by Lee Mandelo is a cross between many of the best genres, in my opinion. It could be described as Southern Gothic, which was the episode that I was originally going to read it for. It could also apparently be described as Dark Academia, which I did not know until I started reading it. It could be described Maybe as horror, although it's a very mild form of horror if you wanted to sort of talk about it that way, or mystery. It's a very weak mystery if you wanted to talk about it that way, but it could be described as mystery or queer romance, which you got to like slow burn if you want to describe this one as queer romance, but it definitely has it. It's kind of all of these things, and it's also kind of none of these things. It sort of draws from a lot of different concepts, but it it really just uses them as much as it wants and it doesn't really commit itself to being that genre all of the time and if i were to describe it as something i don't think i would use any of those words i think i would just call it what it is which is the fast and the furious so andrew is a deeply traumatized man he's traumatized by a lot of things some of them he doesn't even realize yet he does a lot of unpacking in this book most of all he's traumatized by the fact that Unfortunately, his closest friend has supposedly committed suicide. I say supposedly because Andrew can't believe it. Eddie had gone away to Nashville to study at Vanderbilt as a master student, and Andrew had wanted nothing more than to follow him. But Eddie kind of kept pushing him away, telling him that he was too busy, he could come a little bit later, until finally he couldn't tell him that anymore. 
And with Eddie unable to stop him, Andrew inserts himself into the life that his best friend and also adoptive brother left behind. He picks up Eddie's research at Vanderbilt. He inherits his roommate, Riley, and he fits himself in with Eddie's questionable friends because he has to find out what happened to him. The story that he heard, even the body that he saw, can't explain the story that people are trying to push on him. As an old family curse makes itself known, revenants rise from the grave, and the life of street racing and drugs starts to catch up with him, Andrew quickly realizes that he might be in over his head. So I want to put this disclaimer first. Do not read this book for the mystery. There's little of it. It's pretty predictable. It's really set up in a way where the mystery is to learn about Eddie and his character through other means. This is a very, um, if you're a Twin Peaks fan, this is a very Laura Palmer way of sort of telling the story. There's this figure who you don't know a lot about and you're sort of slowly learning about them by unraveling the different parts of their life and the different ways that their life touched others. And so it's also a very slow first half. So you have to really be there. And this is true of the whole book. You have to really be there for the vibe and the characters. Because Lee Mandelo is very good at setting up a mood. And I think that's honestly where the Southern Gothic part of it comes in. It's set in the South, but this is a very embodied book. Like you feel like you are living in the South. Whenever he describes um, smells in particular, it was weird that I was like, yeah, I can smell that. I can smell that right now. Or I can feel that. And maybe in a Southern Gothic kind of style, that's not always a good thing for your own personal enjoyment of it, but it is it is good in the writing. And so it is it is something that really sort of sets you in that setting. But in a lot of ways, the South is really just kind of like a metaphor. There's a lot of things that the South can stand in for. So it is a Southern Gothic, but it's not a Southern Gothic. Really, it's a character piece. Because Andrew is no detective. He is not, he's not good at it. He keeps getting distracted. He's very emotional. He has no access to the police. He never contacts them once. And so a lot of his meandering as he's trying to kind of solve what happened to, to Eddie is kind of him trying to reckon with himself as much as he is with the mystery. So I also mentioned romance. It's not a romance, even if the romance is probably one of the best parts. It does slow burn very well because you have a sense of screwed up found family from the street racing crew that Andrew falls in with. And I won't say too much, but the love interest is one of the guys from the crew and they have a bit of animosity, a lot of chemistry. It's not quite rivals to lovers because there's nothing, there's nothing to rival really. <laughs> it's more that Andrew doesn't trust any of them because he's here to sort of investigate all of them. But it's definitely... That one is definitely a healthier relationship than whatever Andrew had going on with Eddie. But the bar is pretty low for that because he was also his adoptive brother. This is a very confusing story. Character interactions are really what kind of drive the book forward. And the writing style changes quite, can change quite abruptly when you're reading a situation in which Andrew is actually interacting with the character and then it's Andrew alone and his own thoughts. I think there was a lot more emphasis put on making you feel like you were in that moment or sort of thinking about the philosophy of things as opposed to actually thinking about things from Andrew's perspective, which is sort of weird for character 
stuff, but it wasn't enough to throw me off because I, I did like both types of the writing style, but just be aware that it does do a little bit of a switch up. I've heard it likened to a lot of books that I've enjoyed in the past. In particular, you see a lot of people describing it as the Raven Cycle. <laughs> and that's because the main character, Andrew, is honestly Ronan Lynch. Um, <laughs> but it's weird because if you're then following and you know the Raven Cycle, this actually makes Andrew's love interest the equivalent of Kavinsky, which is not the healthiest relationship. <laughs> but again... I think if we're going for the same metaphor, that makes Eddie Noah the, the ghost boy. So really, it's all a little bit weird. But yeah, in this book, in terms of content warnings, there is a lot of substance abuse, a lot of reckless and impaired driving, a lot of grief and drama, dealing with internalized homophobia, because of course, again, this is the South. And also a lot of ignoring work emails, because he is a graduate student. One of these stressed me out more than the others. When I was reading about it, the research out the window. I don't know how he's he has all this time to do the street raising because I was very worried about his academic career. <laughs> and and the last maybe content warning for this is circling back to the romance with uh, Andrew and the other character is this is what tipped me off to the fact that this was not a young adult book like I thought it was when I picked it up. There is a scene that eventually fades to black, perhaps not quick enough. So just. Be aware that this is a very much an adult book, even though there's a lot of comparisons to The Raven Cycle. It is not a young adult novel. So overall, it's I'd say it's a good book and it's definitely a comfort read because it's not something that you need a ton of brain power for. And it's also not really like a haunting story. I don't think it's going to maybe screw you up in the same way that reading Kareen's book would. So despite the spirits involved, it's kind of like more of a residue. Like it's a it's a nice one, but it, it really relies on vibe and also character-driven pieces. So if you are interested in what I described, I'd say go for it. It's, it is very fun to read, and it's kind of a comfort read in the same way that The Fast and the Furious might be a little bit of a comfort movie. So, all right. And with that, I think we have all of our books talked about, and hopefully you can find something interesting to read for spooky season. Not this one. Not Kareen's. Don't read Kareen's. We have three other perfectly good books. Three other perfectly good books. Perhaps you can watch whatever 10 minutes of the movie that Kareen watched. If you want to get the best experience out of it. So Okay, well, I do have to say, though, that book is really, really popular um, in the horror community. Like, it is one of those books that will always be listed as one that is part of, like, the top however many it appears on a lot of lists. So just saying that it might be for some audience out here, even though it is not for Kareen. To every book their reader, this was just not the book for me. However, Gabriel absolutely sounds like up my alley. You had me a Fast and Furious. <laughs> Fun times. And it also can be found on our staff pick shelf, not even picked by me. So that's how you know it's good. That's also why I didn't realize it wasn't a young adult book. So thank you to everybody out there. If you are interested in some nonfiction Hollywood history, we have something for you. If you're interested in something lighthearted and you want to see what a what a very well-known manga is like, or if you think that it's okay to go around killing random vampire children, or if you enjoyed the Raven cycle, we've got something for you. So thank you everybody. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. 
You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.